All right, well, it's good to see you this evening. If you would turn your Bible to Acts chapter 1, we're going to pick up there where we left off uh, last week. And uh, this will maybe the last of these, we'll see. Anyway, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> the former treaties have made oath the office of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God being assembled together with them, commanded them they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So we, as we concluded last week, we talked about how Jesus started his church, started the church, his church during the, his earthly ministry, and we talked about the things that, that Jesus taught and the things that they did as a church like we do as churches even the day prior to Pentecost. You know, there were 11 of them. They had a business meeting. Um, they had a treasure. You know, they had, they had a, a church role. They had all these things that we have today. And yet people say the church didn't start till Pentecost. Well, uh, how do you add to something that's not there? In the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 added to them. So, and, and ended with, you know, Jesus started the church with materials prepared by John the Baptist. And, and, uh, and look at Acts chapter 1, verse 22. As Peter is holding the first business meeting of the church, uh, after he became pastor, of course, he was appointed by the Lord Jesus in John chapter 21 to be the pastor uh, when Jesus uh, left this earth. And so Peter is, is taking that leadership role and he, he has a business, conducts a business meeting. And he says this in verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until that same day that he was taken up from us, must be one ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So beginning with the baptism of John, so Peter, or, or, yeah, Peter says this, this idea of the church goes all the way back beginning with John. Now, John didn't start a church. But what John did was prepare materials for the church. Uh, again, Luke 16, 16 says, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, or since John, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. So, of course, we said the gospel was the, the gospel of the kingdom, and when we receive the gospel that gives us entrance, salvation gives us entrance into the kingdom of God. Uh, baptism is the entrance into the church. And so he, he says here that, since the time of John, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. So, 
if you go to John chapter 1, and, and I'm going to sh- I'll show you, try to show you what we mean by John prepared materials for the church that Jesus would build. In John 1, verse 14, it says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course, it's speaking about Christ, of course. John bare witness of Him. Uh, just pause. Isn't that what we do? We bear witness to Christ. We're witnesses for Him, or of Him. And Christ saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So John is declaring here, and he does it in, in, throughout this passage, he's declaring that Christ is the incarnate God. In other words, he, he, he existed before the incarnation. Before he was born as a babe in Bethlehem, he existed before that. He, he is God in the flesh. So he's talking about, he's saying here that he believes that Jesus is deity. He's not just a man. He's declaring his deity, that he is the Son of God. And verse 16 says, And of the fullness have all we received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, there again, only begotten means he's unique, he's one of a kind. And that's what John's declaring. Just the same thing we, we teach, that Jesus is one of a kind. Which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And the, again, the idea here is he is one with the Father. That's what the idea of the bosom of the Father. This is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? He confessed the night, not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou that we may give answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John had answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is whose coming after me is preferred before me. Again, there he's declaring the deity or the, or the, the, the preexistence of Christ, um, whom ye know not. He it is whose coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latched I'm not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man, which is preferred before me, for he was before me. So, you know, he's, he, he, he's declaring that, you know, though he was born in the flesh after me, you know, John is six months older than Jesus. We know that, that Elizabeth was six months pregnant when Mary was conceived of the Holy Ghost. The Bible tells us that in Luke chapter 1. Um, and so he, he is older by human standards, but yet he said he was before me, or he existed before me. Uh, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I am come baptizing with water. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit. So here's John's testimony of Christ. This is how I identified him. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it bowed upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, 
uh, and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And again, the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They say unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak, Followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, he saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when he, Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon the son of Jonas, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. By the way, Andrew says we found the Messiah. What does Messiah mean? Matthew chapter 1. God with us. So these, these disciples of John are already understanding this is God with us. This is God with us. So your John had clearly identified who Jesus was, and they believed that. They believed that. <coughs> they, they understood that, that he was God with us. Um, and then in verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. When Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonas. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation of stone. They following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was a Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith unto him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. <laughs> you know, he speaks his mind. He did nothing hidden about this guy. He's what you see is what he is. That's what he's saying, Nathanael. And Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Some people say they didn't know who he was. Oh, yes, they did know who he was. They knew who he was. They didn't understand everything about him. And they didn't really understand that he was going to die. Nor did they want to accept that. Because no Jew was looking for that, really. They didn't want to accept that. You know, you know, would you want your leader or the one you're following or trusting in to die? So, yeah, they, they didn't want that to happen to him, but they knew who he was. They knew he was the son of God. And you know, Nathaniel understood that. Peter and, and Andrew, they all understood this. And, and so, uh, and Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? <laughs> thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Um, so these were disciples of John the Baptist, had been baptized by John the Baptist, and they followed Jesus. As soon as John points out who Jesus is, they leave John, because John said, there's one coming after me that is preferred before me, and he's the Messiah, I'm not. So you need to follow him. That's really what he's saying. I'm just a witness of him. And, you know, we don't want people to follow us. We're the witness of him. 
We want people to follow Christ. Receive Christ. It's the same message that John preached. And so when, when they saw Jesus, when they recognized him, when, when John pointed out, they left John and followed Jesus. And, and of course, John said that I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Now, he didn't say he's going to baptize you by the Holy Ghost, that you'd be baptized by the Holy Ghost. He said you're going to be baptized. He's going to, he is going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Notice verse 33 again. It says, And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Now, and this is one of those things that's confusing for a lot of people and the, the universal church people talk about it, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the, bat, the Spirit of God has never baptized anyone. The word baptize here, baptism have, can have, uh, can, can, you know, means to immerse. It also, and really, you know, that also means to overwhelm, to, um, to saturate. When you got baptized, were you saturated, Mandy? Yeah. I mean, she was completely covered. I made sure. Um, but, you know, the, 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 baptize, the word baptize here in this context means to be overwhelmed, to be saturated richly with the Holy Spirit, it, like an enlargement of a bestowment. It's called an outpouring. It's like an outpouring. For example, in I think this verse explains this the best. In Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius, or not Cornelius, Peter went to Cornelius, and he began to preach Christ unto them, the Spirit, the Spirit fell on them as the, the Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, like Jews on the day of Pentecost. And this is, what, this is what the Bible, how the Bible describes it. They of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out. That's the same word that's translated baptize in verse 33 of John chapter 1. So the Spirit of God was poured out. It poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Um, in Matthew 3.11, he said, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that come after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you, again, with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And, of course, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus fulfilled that promise. And, and we read about in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, he said, You're to wait for the promise, saith he, that I'll be baptized you with the Holy Ghost. So I'm going to overpower you. I'm going to overwhelm you. I'm going to, really what he did on the day of Pentecost was empower the church. He didn't start it. It was already started. And it was started with materials that John prepared. Je- you know, Jesus never rebaptized any of John's disciples. Uh, look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We have no record of that anywhere because he didn't do it. In fact, it's believed that Jesus never baptized. Never actually did it. He authorized his disciples to do it. John chapter 4 in verse 1. Wherein therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more than disciples than John. Though Jesus himself baptized not. But his disciples. So those that those that 
repented and believed on Christ during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus didn't actually do the baptisms. His disciples did. He authorized them to baptize those converts. And, of course, John, we find what John did here was prepare materials for Jesus to build the church. Those disciples were baptized by John, and then they left John and followed Christ. And, uh, and so, uh, Jesus, so we see Jesus started the church with materials prepared by John the Baptist. <coughs> Jesus also said his church would be perpetual. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and then also Matthew 28, verse 18, <coughs> Matthew 16, 18 says, And I say unto, also unto thee, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this, this verse, of course, is, is cause for a lot of misunderstanding and controversy. You know, Peter, the, the, the Catholics and the, and the universal church people, uh, well, not really the universal church, but the Catholics and some Protestants say that Peter, uh, Jesus built the church upon Peter. So then... And, of course, you know, that, that goes right along with Protestantism and, you know, churches started by men and denominations started by men. However, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, you know, Peter is, is a small rock. He's a stone. But upon this rock, it's a boulder, like a, like a, a huge boulder, which is Christ. You know, Jesus is that rock. First Corinthians 10, was, verse 4, says that rock that followed them was Christ. So Jesus is the rock. And he says, on this rock, in other words, the testimony of Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So that's what he said, I'm going to build my church on. He, he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the word church here is used in an institutional sense. Not particularly talking about, he's not talking about a universal church or a particular church, but the institution of the church. Like we would say, the home in America is in is in is in trouble. You know, we're not talking about a particular home. We're talking about the institution of the home. Uh, so we refer to any church. So what he was saying here is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And, of course, in Matthew 28, he said, told his disciples uh, in what was called the Great Commission, in Matthew 28:18, he says, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So he promised that he would be with them always. He would never leave them. Uh, Revelation 2.1 tells us he's walking in the midst of his candlesticks. You know, so this speaks of a perpetuity or... Some people use the term succession of churches. Now, when we say succession of churches, that doesn't necessarily mean that we can trace our lineage all the way back to Jesus or John the Baptist. Because many of the records have been destroyed. In fact, some places, some parts of our church history, some of only the stuff we have is what the enemy said about us. Because they burned, they burned, 
they burned um, much of the church records and history of the Baptists, burned their Bibles, and so on. But just as God promised, we would always have his word. You know, heaven and earth shall pass away, my, my, my word shall not pass away, Matthew 24, 35 says. He also promised there would be, always be true New Testament churches existing until he returns. He said, I'll be with you always. And, and he said that my, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The, the world is not going, the devil's not going to be able to stamp out completely churches. They've tried. He's tried. You know, the Roman Empire wanted to go completely rid itself of churches uh, until Constantine, then he embraced, and then it was, a, it was a much more subtle way of infiltrating the churches and destroying them that way, out of which came the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the state joined the church, you know, through Constantine. Um, but historians, you know, and, and history tells us there's always been there's always been New Testament churches. Uh, in the second century, false doctrines separated churches. The true churches became known as Montanists, and these were many of these were in in North Africa, and they and then eventually they became to be persecuted. Uh, Augustine and uh, those who began to teach, of course, one of the first things that came in uh, was doctrines concerning. Uh, of course, they were worldliness and separation, but also doctrines concerning the local church and so on. And so they began to be persecuted. Uh, these groups, you know, they went by other names later on. Novatians, Donatists, Paulicians, Albigenses, Waldensians uh, during the Middle Ages. Uh, as early as the 3rd century, the general name Anabaptist was given to these people, which means rebaptize or baptize again. So that name was already begun to as early as the 3rd century uh, because they, they refused to accept alien baptism. Or, you know, or baptism from a false church, or state church, or so on. Or a Protestant church, as we would call it today. Of course, Protestantism is a, is a relatively new name uh, during the uh, Renaissance period. But, uh, of course, ultimately the prefix Anna was dropped, and they were just came to be called Baptists uh, later on. Uh, but anyway, some of the, even the enemies, uh, for example... Ulrich Zwingli, who was a Swiss reformer, who actually he died on the battlefield because uh, he, he you know, there's, a, there's a picture of him standing before his church with a Bible in one hand, a sword in the other. Because he united the church with the state. And so he actually went to war against the enemies of the church and, against, and the enemies of the state. And he died in the battle. You know, this is a... This is, this is a Preacher um, died in the battlefield. And he said this, unquote, quote, unquote, The institution of Anabaptism is no novelty, but for 1,300 years has caused great disturbance in the church. And, of course, the church he's referring to is the Catholic church or the Protestant church. It has acquired such a strength that the attempt in this age to contend with it appeared futile for a time, unquote. Now, again, he says... For 1,300 years, and he died in 1531, so where does that take you to? Go back to the 2nd century. So he's admitting that these Anabaptists 
have the lineage all the way back to at least the second century. And he persecuted them. He put laws of them to death, him and Luther and Calvin. Now, Theodore Beza, the friend and pupil, co-pastor and successor of John Calvin, is quoted by Jones in his history of the Christian church as saying, quote, as for the Waldensians, and again, it's another name for a different group, I may be permitted to call them the very seed of the primitive and pure church, Christian church, since they are those that have been upheld, as is abundantly manifested by the wonderful providence of God, so that neither those endless storms and tempests by which the whole Christian world has been shaken for so many succeeding ages, and the western parts of length so miserably oppressed by the bishops of Rome, falsely so called, nor the, those horrible persecutions which a volu- which have been expressly raised against them, were ever able so far as to prevail as to make them bend or yield a voluntary subjection to the Roman tyranny and idolatry. Unquote. Um, John T. Christian quotes this statement with regard to the Waldensians by an Australian inquisitor. An inquisitor, of course, is somebody who works for the Catholic Church. They're the ones that were, the Jesuits uh, instituted the Inquisition. And he said this about 1260, oh, quote, all, among all the sects, there's no one more pernicious to the church, that is the Roman Catholic Church, than that of the Leonists, that's another name for the Waldensians, and for three reasons. Notice these reasons. In the first place, because it is most ancient. For some say that dates back to the time of Sylvester, A.D. 325, others to the time of the Apostles. In the second place, because it is most widespread. There is hardly a country where it does not exist. In the third place, because if other sects strike with horror those who listen to them, the Leonists, on the contrary, possess a great outward piety. As a matter of fact, they lead irreproachable lives before men. As regards their faith and the articles of their creed, they are orthodox. Their one fault is that they blaspheme the Church of Rome and the clergy, points to which laymen in general are known to be easily led astray, unquote. So the only thing he has to condemn them for is they will not submit themselves to the Church of Rome. He can't deny they are godly people. And he admits that they possibly go all the way back to the apostles. Um, you know, there is, there is ample, ample testimony, of course, to this fact that the churches um, like ours go all the way back. Uh, Bobby Mitchell sent me this back in 2001. And, um, and, and at that time, there was a thing going around called Baptist Protestant came out of Bob Jones University. I think it was actually Bob Jones III that said it. So I remember it because it was right before the conference in Maryland that year. Anyway, uh, it said, he, he, he says this, In recent years, it seems the terms Baptist and Protestant become closely related by many that consider themselves fundamental Baptists. Some have gone so far as to make them almost interchangeably. Recently, a notable fundamentalist leader intermingled the two terms by preferring referring to himself and others that believe like him as Baptist Protestant people. 
But he said, compare the title of Baptist Protestant people with the following quote. Quote, by the time Luther and Zwingli began to organize the Protestant churches, the Anabaptists were already many in number. Yet for many reasons, Luther and Zwingli did not find in them friends, particularly because the Anabaptists did not believe in infant baptism, and Luther and Zwingli did. It's interesting for us today to read what treatment these Anabaptists received from the hands of the Reformers. Between 1517, when Luther first posted his defiance against indulgences, and 1530, when the teachings of Luther and Swingley had won over a large following, over 2,000 Anabaptists were executed. And the cruelty which with the formers killed the Anabaptists reminds one of the methods of the Inquisition, or the Catholics. Hounded by Catholics and Protestants, driven from place to place, killed in prison wherever found, yet their numbers swelled and their teachings spread in Switzerland, Germany, Austria, and Holland. The above reference quote, is one of the main that could be produced on the subject of the relationship of Baptist to Protestants. It is particularly interesting to this preacher because it is not from a Baptist historian. It is not from a Baptist preacher, nor is it a friend, even a friend of Baptists. The aforementioned quote is from John Gare, and judging by his own writing, he obviously is not even a born-again Christian. The quote is from a pe- page 407 of his book, How the Great Religions Began, copyright 1929, published by Dodd Mead and Company, New York. So how would, who would argue that the Anabaptists 16th century were not part of our Baptist heritage, yet there are those that insist that modern New Testament Baptists came from the Reformers. How can this be when the Baptist forefathers were executed, killed, hounded, and imprisoned by such men as Luther and Zwingli? Uh, Baptists are not Protestants. We never protested the Catholic Church because we were never part of it. Never part of it. Um, B.H. Carroll, in his book, or J.M. Carroll, I'm sorry, in his book, Trail Blood, that we had some of those back there. This is my copy. This is, you know, but those were bigger, which makes it easy to read. He says, says some things about these people, and he gives three significant facts for a large majority of many of the churches are clearly shown by history during these first three centuries. So, in these three things, he says, the separateness and independence of churches, so there was local independent churches, subordinate character of bishops or pastors, uh, the baptism of believers only. And then he quotes Mosham, who was the greatest of all Lutheran church historians, who said this, quote, But whoever supposes that the bishops of this golden age of the church correspond with the bishops of the following centuries must blend and confound characters that are very different for in this century and the next, a bishop had a charge of a single church. In other words, a bishop is another name for pastor, biblical name for pastor. And so he's saying in those early days, a bishop had the charge of a single church. <coughs> Excuse me. Which might ordinarily be contained in a private house, nor was he its lord, but was in reality its minister or servant. All the churches in those primitive times were independent bodies, or none of them, and none of them subject to the jurisdiction of any other. For though the churches were founded by the apostles themselves, frequently had the honor shown them to be consulted in doubtful cases, yet they had no judicial authority, nor control, nor power of giving laws. On the contrary, it is as clear as the noonday that all Christian churches had equal rights and were in all respects on Footing of equality, unquote. Um, and then uh, James Beller, in his book Sacred Betrayal, page 5 says, 
Quote, for the first 300 years of Christian history, the believers were scattered in their local assemblies, administered by pastors. They had fellowship with one another because of common doctrine. There was no hierarchy, no central control, no dominion over the state, and no church-state relationship at all. Unquote. So again, just like we are, the churches of those days were local, uh, governed themselves, had no state relationship with the state. We're just citizens of the state, but we have no control or are not controlled by the state. <coughs> we have no hierarchy outside the church. You know, there's nothing really different about our church than the church that Jesus pastored. For example, uh, look at number eight. It says each church and each church is a body of Christ. Colossians chapter one, verse eighteen. <coughs> Excuse me. Colossians chapter one, verse eighteen. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Uh, and if you go back to chapter 1, put it in context here, verse 2 it says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae. So he's addressing the church at Colossae. In Philippi, or Philippians, he addresses the church at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Uh, so each church is a body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, he says, under the church of God which is at Corinth. In verse 12, chapter 12, verse 27, he says, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And so each church is a body of Christ. And that body has members that are set in the body. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. <coughs> Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 18. It says, But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. The word set here, notice it says, God has set. Now hath God set the members. The word set here means to have one put or placed. So, God has put in the body... Those members, just like he's placed in your body the correct, correct members to make your body function as, a, as one unit. And so he puts members in a body, a body of Christ, uh, for, for that same purpose, uh, for it to function. So the members are set in the body, and members can be taken in or removed from the body only by the body. Again, Matthew 18, you know, 15 through 18 very clearly says that, that if, you know, if, there's, if there's an issue between members, then they're to go to each other and try to reconcile. But if they will not hear the church, let them be unto thee a heathen man and a publican. So you're to put him out. And, of course, it, the Bible, as it goes along, further explains that. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses uh, 4 through 7, the man that was <coughs> excuse me, in adultery with his father's wife Paul said in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when, you are gathered, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of Lord Jesus, your glorying is not good. Know ye not the little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? 
Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. So they were to, to put him out of the church. They, as a church, as a body, they were to remove that one member. Because it was like a cancer in the body. So they remove it. Now, you go to the second Corinthians in chapter two, and you, you know what he tells them to do? You take that member back in. He had evidently he had repented, and he said that you need to forgive such a one. So that when you know, and, that, and that's that's the way it's supposed to be done. When a person repents, he's to be taken back in. Received back into the body. But if a person is obstinate, will not repent, you know, and Pastors do not have the authority to do this. There's not some hierarchy that has that authority out there to tell us who can be in our church and who can't be. Now, you know, I've, I've had this argument given to me that the, you know, the local church idea gives a pastor dictatorial authority. Makes him a dictator. Now, I had a friend who, Universal Church, uh, he doesn't have church membership. And I said, how do you exercise church discipline? And this is what he did. He got up in the pulpit, and the guy that was causing division in his church, he told him to leave. Now, what is that? That's dictatorship. I can't do that. I don't have the authority to tell Linda to leave. Because she was voted in by the body. And she can only be voted out by the body. Your person can only be voted out by the body. Now, a pastor does have authority to give direction to the church. But he doesn't have authority to vote people out. He doesn't have the authority. And that's, yet that's the argument that I often hear. Um, it's a straw man. You know, Acts chapter, in Acts chapter uh, 1, when Peter called that business meeting, it, well, let's just go over there. And, and let's just see it. Acts chapter 1, verse 15 through 26, and I won't read it all for sake of time, but Peter, <coughs> Peter stands up, and addresses the issue that you know Judas fell, and then he wanted to take his place. And so it says in verse 23, And they appointed two. And, verse 24, they prayed. And, verse 26, And they gave forth their lots. You know, Peter didn't decide who was going to be the one to take Judas's place. He, he just says, this is, this brother, this is what, what I think we need to do. We need to, we need to vote in somebody, take Judas's place. And, and so they, including Peter, you know, Peter gave direction to the meeting, but they, including Peter, voted, and they voted in <coughs> Mattathias. <coughs> we see this again in uh, Acts chapter 15, when they had the, the, uh, the meeting of the church's between the churches at, of Antioch and the church at Jerusalem over the issue of circumcision. 
And, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I had a Mennonite uncle who said, he used that one time, he said, well, we need to have a conference because we need to have authority over the churches. And, uh, you know, I wasn't quite as sharp on these things as, then as I am now because, you know what, the church at Jerusalem didn't tell the church at Antioch what to do. The church at Antioch corrected the church at Jerusalem. They corrected Mother Church because the heresy was coming from Jerusalem. And they set Jerusalem straight, and, but Jerusalem recognized the error that was coming from there, although the leadership at Jerusalem hadn't sent them out. They had gone out on their own. There's, there's what you get when you have, um, yeah, what's the term for it? Huh? You know, um, people just going out on their own without church, church authorization. But anyway, in Acts chapter 15, in, in verses 15, uh, it says this, well, let's go back to verse uh, 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon had declared how God, at the first, did visit the Gentiles, take out of them a people for his name. To this agree the words of the prophet, as it is written. After, and so he quotes the prophets, and then he says in verse 19, Wherefore my sentence is, would you trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God? But that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication, things strangled and from blood. And then it says in verse 22, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. So James, who's obviously the pastor now, in Peter's place, the second pastor that church Jerusalem says, you know what, this is what the, the scriptures say, that God's going to visit the Gentiles and take out a people for his name. And this is what's happening. And he says the prophets agree with this. So he appeals to the scriptures to support what he's saying and support what Peter or Barnabas and Paul are saying and what is right in this issue. <coughs> and he says, I think this is what we should do. And then it pleased the whole church. So they really voted on it. And they sent uh, messengers a message to the church at Antioch. You know, again, the word sentence of James doesn't mean that he passed judgment and that was it. No, that was his opinion. This is, he said, this is what he said. This is what I, th- church, this is what I think we ought to do. And, and, and you notice what his authority is. He says, Simeon hath declared how God, and then he said, and to this agree the words of the prophets. So he appealed to scripture to support his opinion or his judgment, and he says, this, is, this, is the, this agrees with the Old Testament scriptures. This is what I think we ought to do because this is what the scriptures say. And the people said, you, you're right. And they all agreed to it, and they voted. He, he, didn't, he didn't have the authority to say, this is what we're going to do. No. They agreed, and they voted. It was just his opinion. Uh, so, you know, again, it's, it's a church rule is a congregational rule. A pastor is the leader in it, but he does not have authority to remove or take in members at will. Uh, then also, each body is complete in itself. Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. When Paul writing to the church of Colossae, he says, And ye are complete in him. Ye are complete in him. The word complete means to furnish or supply liberally. It means I abound, I'm liberally supplied with what is necessary for my subsistence. In other words, I have everything I need. 
as a church doesn't and it doesn't require a thousand people. You know, Paul told the church at Corinth they were to they, they, you know he addressed them as being sufficient in themselves, though they needed some direction and uh, apostolic authority to correct some of their <coughs> problems because they weren't evidently listening to their pastors. But he says to them in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that is the first fruits of Achaia, they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you submit yourselves unto such, and everyone that helpeth with us and laboreth. So, you know, apostles had authority. Uh, church, of course, you know, remember in that day, they didn't have a complete Bible then either. In fact, what Paul was writing was part of the scriptures we have now. So there was still apostolic authority. Well, we don't have any apostolic authority. What we have now are the scriptures. And, and so we have everything that we need for a complete church. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So, so, you know, we don't need uh, these other things. Um, and then, I think I should probably stop here. Uh, so, I think we'll pick up here next week. But, uh, but anyway, and, and we'll talk about the damaging effects of the universal invisible church theory, which is very damaging and really has weakened the churches. But we, but we see clearly, I believe, from the scriptures that Christ started the church. Uh, he used the materials that John the Baptist had prepared. That, uh, and the historians agree that churches were individually, uh, locally visible New Testament churches, self-governing. Uh, they date back, and of course, churches like ours do date back all the way to the first, second century. And um, that each, each church is a body of Christ, and we are complete in Him. You know, sometimes, and this is one of the things, one of the fruits that we'll see next week, of the universal church theory. People are impressed with these large organizations because they think they can have greater influence if we all bind together. But they forget that our influence is governed by God, not by what we do. It's governed by God and our obedience to him. And when we yoke up with men and compromise the truth, God removes himself. And that's what we're seeing happening in our, in our nation. Um, we're losing our influence as churches because we're yoking up with unbelief. We're compromising the truth. You know, the fundamentalist movement is a movement of compromise. And guess who did the compromising? Not the Protestants. It's we Baptists to get along. And we've lost our effectiveness because of it, because God's not pleased. Just like Israel. When Israel turned to Egypt or turned to all these nations for help, they lost their independence, their dependence upon God, and they lost their effectiveness as witnesses to the nations around them. So, might Lord help us just to be found faithful to it comes. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the time we had in your word tonight. Thank you for the instruction it gives us, and I pray you help us just to be faithful, help us understand these truths, and um, 
just to live them out and to be content with what you have given us. Father, to be faithful witnesses uh, to others around us and know not the Lord Jesus Christ that are or who are steeped in these false doctrines. Be a witness and testimony for you. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name.